Greetings, this is Douglas Kimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Joining me on today's podcast is Heather Brilliant, the recently appointed CEO at Diamond Hill, having joined the firm in early September of 2019. Prior to joining Diamond Hill, Heather served as the Chief Executive Officer of the Americas for First State Investments. Prior to that, she was the Chief Executive Officer for Morningstar's Australasia business. While at Morningstar, she was Global Head of Equity and Credit Research from 2009 to 2014. Heather is also a CFA charter holder and has served as a board member of the CFA Institute and most recently as a chairwoman of the board for the CFA Institute. On today's episode, we'll discuss Heather's educational background, uh, what brought her to Diamond Hill, uh, the transition from New York City to Columbus, Ohio, and any forthcoming changes in the asset management industry that she foresees. Thank you and enjoy. Heather, thank you for joining me. Thanks Uh, for having me. Of course. Uh, Your educational background is in economics with a minor in Hispanic studies uh, at Northwestern, and you followed that up with an MBA from the University of Chicago. Um, Were your plans always rooted in the financial services industry, Um, and how did your career progress? So actually, no. I was originally planning on being a lawyer. I was on the debate team in high school and college, and that is what debaters do. They go to law school. And so I just thought it would be helpful to make sure I really wanted to be a lawyer and also to save up some money before taking on more student debt to first spend a couple of years working. And so um, I kind of happened upon the financial services industry by um, finding a role through a friend who helped me figure out that there was a lot about investment management and Um, company analysis that is very parallel to debate and really thinking about the pros and cons of an investment idea and then coming down on one side but not having too much confirmation bias about that investment selection. And so uh, I found investment management to very much be what I was looking for in a career and I stuck with it. So that leads into my next question. So as a a trained investor, um, what were the attributes that you found here at Diamond Hill uh, that were attractive and convinced you to join the firm? So I started my investment career actually working for an aggressive growth momentum investor. And it really helped me realize the type of investor I am not. And, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, I realized in that in going through that process that what I really love to do was analyze companies and the underlying businesses that um, that are really driving a stock and uh, to be able to to think through the long term competitive advantages and valuation of those businesses. And I think that very well describes Diamond Hills investment philosophy of really focusing on intrinsic value, thinking long term, thinking like an owner of the business and that all really resonated with me. So, you know, we'll, we'll look big picture. Um, what, what do you think are the biggest uh, structural changes in asset management over the, the last several years? And there have been a bunch. There have been many. I mean, I think one way that I've been talking about the industry a lot lately is that um, we have essentially become kind of a a barbell industry where the firms that are doing particularly well in the industry are either on one side very large and benefiting from huge amounts of scale, and I would put firms like BlackRock and State Street in that category. And then on the other side of the barbell, there are firms that are very clearly boutiques that have defined who they are and who they want to be going forward. And it's not about scale as much as it is about meeting a specific investment need. And, um, and that's where I would certainly put Diamond Hill. 
And then I think there are a whole lot of firms in the middle that uh, I think of kind of as stuck in the middle. And you're seeing you know, lots of these big mergers where they're trying to move in the scale direction. But I think it's been a very challenging environment to have um, mergers and acquisitions be successful, especially when they're driven by things like um, trying to gain scale or cut costs. So what are, what are some of the, the, the investment trends or some of the changes uh, to the industry that you're seeing? So I think there's a few trends that have really been um, impacting our industry over the last several years. One of them is certainly ESG or sustainable investing. Um, another one is clearly the shift towards passive. And you know we have seen many investors make the decision very, um, very purposefully to move in the direction of passive investing. And, um, and a third, I would say, would be the um, focus on objective-based investing or um, you know, moving away from benchmarking or thinking about how you're performing relative to an index, but really thinking about how you're performing relative to what an end investor is looking for um, to come from their investment portfolio. So how is, how is Diamond Hill thinking about ESG? So from an ESG perspective, I would say, um, you know, Diamond Hill does not consider ourselves to be an ESG manager per se. But, um, you know, as I've gotten here and really dug into the way we think about investing, I would say that um, taking a sustainable perspective and and, um, responsible investing has very much permeated the way we think about investing. And so, for example, um, I think the governance part of ESG has been very much a part of our process for, um, you know, for the whole 20 year history of Diamond Hill. And also, because we take a long-term perspective and think like, the, think like owners of the businesses mm-hmm. that we invest in, we certainly spend um, quite a lot of time analyzing risks, especially related to things like environmental and social risks, that would have an impact on the long-term value of the businesses that we own. So, um, you know, we're very cautious that we do not want to be jumping on a bandwagon and um, greenwashing ourselves and calling ourselves ESG, where that isn't necessarily the you know, primary driver of our decision-making. Our primary driver is to make the right investment decision, but we do so taking into consideration the risks that come from environmental, social, and governance considerations. Yeah, and I, and I think as a, as a shareholder and an employee, I think that's a refreshing way of looking at it because I do think, to your point, there is this bandwagon of ESG. So I go to conferences, I talk to consultants, that's all anyone's talking about. But in, in my experience, ESG is different for everyone. I agree completely. And I'd also say, you know, as we think through this topic more and more, um, we've really, as we've taken a step back and looked at how we've handled client requests related to ESG or excluding different types of investments from portfolios, um, we have been very accommodating of doing that whenever our clients have a need to exclude a particular type of company from their investment landscape. And, um, you know, being able to meet our clients where our clients are with regard to the ESG journey or, um, you know, needing to have specific requirements in their portfolios, I think is a much more client-centric way to think about it and uh, will very much continue to permeate how we try to approach the topic. Yeah, it's more of the the partnership. You tell us what you don't want rather than we tell you what we will give you. Yes. And I think that's that's one of the better ways. And again, in my experience, the clients that we have done that for, I've done that for in the past, it's, it's easier for them and it's much more impactful to them if they say, we don't want this, we don't want that. And that makes it much more customized to what they're looking for. Absolutely. There's another element of ESG I would mention as well, which I think we're at the very early stages of taking a look at, which is that we can um, look at how we're thinking about environmental, social, and governance risks and issues in how we run our company. 
And so that's something, you know, as a public company that we do need to take into consideration. And I think our board has um, been very much interested in this topic and certainly thinking about how we take those those issues into consideration and in, in how we run the firm to make sure we have um, adequate diversity at the board level, at the leadership team level, um, throughout our organization. Do we, And then we can take it to, you know, further extend as well. But I think that will require more conversation as we uh, get to know each other a little bit more. So that, that brings me right into my next question. Less than you know, 20% of the, of the firms um, have female CEOs. So how do you view your position from an industry standpoint? So um, you know, with regard to the topic of diversity, I think it's very important for us as an industry to really f- stay focused on cognitive diversity. And um, this is something I have been very passionate about for a long time because I do think that cognitively diverse teams make better decisions. And when I say cognitive diversity, I mean people who can work together to solve problems and they come to problem solving in different ways and have very different perspectives uh, about how to uh, how to think about you know resolving problems or brainstorming ideas or taking the firm forward. And so um, I think gender diversity is very observable and also um, you know there are approximately equal numbers of men and women. And so when we look at firms and we can see there's a huge discrepancy in uh, in that level of equality, I think it's an easy one to focus on initially. And it is one that, um, you know, I do believe that we should be doing a better job of as an industry. But secondarily, I'd say it really is much more important fundamentally for us to achieve cognitive diversity. And that requires far more than just gender parity. And so I think, you know, as we as we move forward as an industry, thinking about how we make decisions, we need to incorporate all different types of problem solving. And that can come from things that are very observable, such as race or ethnicity, but it can also come from things that are a lot less observable. And so, um, you know, to the extent that we can really think through how our employees are coming at challenges and how they approach things from a different perspective, I think that's really what we're after. So is that that will play into as we as a firm grow and you know we're at about 128 employees right now that we're looking specifically to do that to to add diversity while also adding the best candidate possible but that's something that we're actively thinking about. Absolutely. I think one way to to think about it, too, that um, has actually been gaining some momentum in the press lately as well, is to make sure that whenever you are hiring for a particular role, that you're considering a diverse slate of candidates. And so, you know, of course, you always need to choose the best person for the role. But I think the historical... um, perspective on this was that there is some single great person and that, um, you know, therefore only the best person could be hired. But I think the new thinking really um, and where cognitive diversity comes into play is that we actually need to assemble the team that makes the best decisions, not hire the individual who might do a particular job best. And so that expands the way we can think about how we add to the team and the skills we're really looking for. And, you know, it will require, I think, a lot of discussions internally and externally to make sure that we are identifying the skills that we already have and the skills that we want to bring into our teams. But it does, I think, really open up the landscape in terms of making sure we have uh, diversity in the the hiring slates as we move forward. So I'm going to move to uh, the standard CEO question, uh, which I see in every every interview, every podcast. Uh, What book are you reading right now? Uh, Or if you're not reading one right now, what was the most recent book that you've read? Yes. So um, I am an avid reader and I love to read um, both fiction and nonfiction. And so I'm constantly kind of 
reading a couple, juggling a couple of books. Um, from a fiction perspective, my favorite category is historical fiction. Nice. Um, I just love that you can get some perspective on some time period in history. And while I'm not really reading a historical fiction book right now, I'm watching The Crown. Okay. Um, so that's that's been a fun perspective on um, on you know the Queen of England and everything that she's gone through over her lifetime, which has been very long. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and the queen today actually reminds me very much of my my grandma who passed away about a decade ago but she um, she looked just like the queen looks now oh. so <laughs> so I have kind of a personal infatuation with the queen <laughs> um, and then you know from a, a business book perspective I recently read um, a book called the Culture Code and um, there's another kind of parallel book called The Talent Code that I just started. And I think The Culture Code is a great book because it really goes through a number of different considerations when you're thinking about the culture of a team or a business that um, can, A, help push us forward with the topic of diversity, but B, I think can also um, make sure that as leaders of businesses and, and everybody really within the firm can pro- provide some element of leadership, that we're really thinking about um, how we make sure we are humble and that we're providing the opportunity for people to bring new ideas and that we're you know, encouraging creative, innovative thinking and, um, and also providing accountability and making sure people you know, understand where their responsibilities are and how they can really contribute to the team and the firm. So uh, I thought that was a great book and would highly recommend it. Excellent. So more on the personal side. So you've lived in Australia, if yep. I remember correctly. You then lived in New York City, yes. and now you're in Columbus. Yes. So how has the transition gone from the bustling metropolis of New York City to Columbus, Ohio? So it's actually gone really well. My kids love it here. They have fortunately happened upon a tremendously positive environment at Jones Middle School. And um, I have been so so impressed with the principal of this school. I think um, if you could take the ideal principal for a middle school out of a movie, I think you would pick Jason Fine, who's the principal there. And, um, and he's just really focused on inclusivity and making sure everybody has a good experience. And that, you know, I think junior high or middle school is really about so much more than whatever you're learning in class. It's really that process of socialization and, you know, moving from childhood into um, adolescence mm-hmm. and, you know, dealing with everything that comes with that. And so both of my kids are, are at that age and going through that transition. And I'm so happy that they've been able to do it in a place as um, warm and welcoming as Columbus. Yeah, I don't know when they got away from junior high, because I went to junior high. I (laughs) didn't go to middle school. So I don't know when that that change happened. But uh, I was shocked when I found out my son was going to middle school and not junior high. Yes, I said junior high at one point in the last few weeks and was corrected. So Wow. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, So you uh, are very involved in the CFA Institute. Yes. Um, You sit on the board. You serve as the chairwoman of the board over the past year. Uh, Diamond Hill has 128 employees, as I just mentioned, 50 of whom are CFAs, uh, which is nearly 40% of the firm. When we look at the investment team of 48 professionals, 83% hold their CFA. Uh, In your experience, how does the CFA help to differentiate people within the investment management business? So I think that most people think about the CFA in terms of the competence it provides because it is a very rigorous set of exams and program. And I think, um, you know, it's very challenging to pass. Very few people um, pass all three levels on the first try, for example. And um, and so I think there is certainly a, a rigor of the program that is very important. 
But what I actually think is more distinguishing than that is the annual commitment that every CFA charter holder makes to the ethics and integrity of our industry. And to me, that is really the differentiator of a CFA charter holder. It says that you are somebody who cares about making sure the investor has a good experience, about making sure we have the integrity as an industry to be charging appropriate fees, to be thinking about the experience that our investors are getting, um, and to be doing everything you can to make sure that as an industry we're doing the right thing. And so what have you learned? As I said, you sat on the board or you sit on the board. Um, I'm still on the board. Still on the board. Until August. Um, What have you learned about our industry? Um, Because obviously you're hearing from a wide swath of the industry, whether it's in your committee meetings or going to events. So what have you learned uh, in having that type of exposure? So, um, you know, there's a wide variety of people both on the board now and that have been on the board over the past um, six plus years that I've been on the board. Everybody from, you know, an executive at BlackRock to a um, single person RIA um, based in Missouri and, and, you know, and everything in between from a size and um, kind of different perspective around the world. Um, And I, I love that about the CFA board experience. I think being able to be part of that very diverse group has been incredible, but also just learning from the perspectives that people have from different angles on the industry has been an incredible learning experience for me. And uh, I think, you know, that's, it's been very interesting to see the transition to passive happen through Mm -hmm. the eyes of CFA Institute and to um, really think about how CFA charter holders can remain relevant in an environment where people are worried about the rise of data and the use of analytics instead of perhaps something that an individual might do in a, a cash flow model, for example. And it's something that we talk about with, with great frequency at the board is how do we make sure the CFA curriculum is staying up to date as our industry is going through a tremendous amount of change. So it's been a really great experience to just kind of have um, very in-depth discussions about what is the purpose of our industry and what drives us and how do we remain relevant to the investors who trust us to take care of their capital and, and help them save for retirement and have enough to send their kids to college and all the challenges that investors face. Well, Heather, I know you're busy. Uh, I know you got a lot going on. So Always I want to thank you. you, Doug. I appreciate that. I want to thank you for coming in. Hopefully this has been helpful to, to our listeners. Uh, and, you know, thanks for your time. Well, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it and happy to come back at any point. Great. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.